King Solomon, according to the Talmud, once searched for a magic ring that could make a happy man sad and a sad man happy. A common merchant made one in an instant by carving into an ordinary ring these words, This too shall pass. Important words to remember, I suppose, for if you're happy today, hold on to it. This too shall pass. And if you're sad today, take hope. This too shall pass. Although in New York City they are surely wondering with new and recycled grief, when will all of this really pass? In the words of that celebrated New Yorker, Yogi Berra, it was deja vu all over again last Monday when yet another airliner rained down its death upon the Big Apple. This too shall pass, but when? We now enter as a nation into a Thanksgiving season quite unlike any other in the history of the United States, save perhaps for one, because this time is anybody sure this too shall pass. As Time Magazine's Thanksgiving cover story this week proclaimed, we gather together. The subheading were these words, and I'll put it on the screen for you. The unbidden guests of Thanksgiving will be the ghosts of September 11, lost loved ones for many, the lost sense of security for most others. A holiday that celebrated American good fortune must now reflect on what has been taken away and what can be salvaged. But then again, you and I are far away from New York City's ashes. We are not near Washington, D.C.'s anthrax. And so I suppose that young co-ed is right. She's a student at Andrews University. She wrote me a few days ago and she said, Pastor, please. Do I have to keep coming to church to remember? Six days shall we labor and remember, but can't we just forget in church? You know what? I like her suggestion. So let's do. For these next two Sabbaths of Thanksgiving, rather than reliving the ongoing tragedies in our nation, let us reflect upon a spirit of Thanksgiving that, like the mythological phoenix bird, can yet rise out of the funereal ashes of our unfolding headlines. Let's call it the Thanksgiving phoenix out of the ashes, a grateful heart. Today, let us briefly ponder about our priorities. And then next Sabbath, you and I, let's reflect upon our relationships, our priorities. I've been intrigued with an unusual story that is continuing to unfold in our post-September 11 world, a story that's being carried by our news weeklies and dailies, reported in the Wall Street Journal, U.S. News and World Report, and Business Week. Let's take the October 29 issue of Business Week just a few days ago. Notice these words that appeared in that article. Consumer confidence is low. Unemployment is rising. And we're at war. These days, it seems the news is all bad all the time. But rather than retreat, some people, particularly those in the upper economic echelons, are boozing it up, spending loads of money, and behaving as if each day were their last. Is it an aberration, that report? Nope. Wall Street Journal as well is chronicling this binge buying, particularly by the wealthy. They are calling it the carpe diem effect. Seize the day and please buy it now. Which is why Business Week carries such examples as these. Upper end living, to be sure, in Coral Gables, Florida. A luxury car dealership, quoting the co-owner, 
reporting, and I'm quoting Ken Gorin now, a high-end contagious energy among customers buying $75,000 and up Porsche 911 Carreras. Wow. Since, I'm quoting him more. Since September 11, we've seen people who were sitting on the fence about buying a car, now buying. People are saying, it's okay to go out and enjoy yourself. Why not? And then on the other side of the coast, uh, the West Coast, California, Lancaster, Chuck Matthews, who sells $18,000 Harleys, and you know what those are, reports doing brisk business. Quoting him now, people are buying them because you never know what tomorrow brings. Carpe diem, seize the moment. Let us eat, drink, and be merry tomorrow. How does it go? Tomorrow we die. I don't know if you can get a camera in close on this. This is from the weekend issue of Wall Street Journal. You see a big red Mustang convertible. And then the news that October, more than any other October in the history of car sales, America sold more cars, not economy cars as only but the upper niche, how does it put it here? The biggest sellers have flash, glitz, and price tags that seem surprisingly out of step with the times. It's called the carpe diem effect. Seize the moment and go for broke. And by the way, it isn't just the accumulation of possessions. People in this post-September 11 world are throwing their personal priorities and values out the window as well. Here's a headline that would catch anybody's eye. Wall Street Journal again. Why be good in times like this? And then there's a report opening about a 25-year-old school teacher about the age of many of you here, Lindsay Byrne, L.A. She was a diehard dieter, no fast food, no alcohol, no second helpings. Now she says life is too short to suffer again through the celery sticks she used to graze on. Some of you can appreciate that. If it could all end tomorrow, why am I obsessing over something so shallow, she wonders. She had fudge for breakfast recently. That's a thought. Dinner one night was Popeye's thighs and drumsticks dipped in ranch dressing. And tomorrow, she says, I'm thinking corn dogs. What's happening? Seize the moment. Let us eat, drink, and be merry. I don't know if I'll even be here tomorrow. And so a psychotherapist, 36 years old in Seattle, Washington, when he watches the World Trade Center's crumble on his television screen. He's never been to New York in his life, jumps in his Honda, drives the four days to volunteer with the Red Cross in the Big Apple. But what happened after he got there? Robert Wheeler, a week later, who had quit smoking the month before, started lighting up again. I know that quitting is important, says Mr. Wheeler, 36, but it's a matter of priorities right now. Or more correctly, the abandonment of priorities right now. In fact, one more line from the Wall Street Journal. Let's put it up on the screen. Since the horrific events of September 11, a lot of Americans are reassessing their priorities. Some are huddling close with family and friends. And I'd like to focus on that, you and me, next uh, Sabbath. Others are seeking solace at church, synagogue, or yoga class. But with the country at war and fear of bioterrorism mounting, many are wondering, what's the point of being good anymore? End quote. The carpe diem effect, physically, morally, spiritually. Let us eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. We've heard those words. You know why? It's as old as the human race, that carpe diem philosophy. Once upon a time, Jesus told a Thanksgiving story with a carpe diem effect surprise ending and a not-so-surprising moral beyond the ending. Today, we open our Bibles to the Gospel of St. Luke for that story of Christ. Luke chapter 12, find it with me, 
Luke chapter 12, I'll be reading in the New Living Translation. And those of you watching on television, that'll be the translation we put on the screen for you. Whatever Bible you brought today, follow along. We'll begin in verse 13. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Then someone called from the crowd to Christ, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. People have always had problems with wills. It was not an exception even in the time of Christ. Verse 14, Jesus replied, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, Beware. Don't be greedy for what you don't have. Real life is not measured by how much we own. And he gave an illustration. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. In fact, his barns were full to overflowing. So he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store everything. And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. The carpe diem effect. Ah, but God said to him, you fool. You will die this very night. Then who will get it all? Yes, Jesus concludes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. And then turning to his disciples, that would be you, that would be I, turning to us, Jesus said, so I tell you this Thanksgiving, don't worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or clothes to wear, for life consists of far more than food and clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't need to plant or harvest or put food in barns because God feeds them. And you are far more valuable to Him than any birds. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Of course not. And if worry can't do little things like that, what's the use of worrying over bigger things? Hey, look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, won't he more surely care for you? You have so little faith. And don't worry about food, what to eat and drink. Don't worry about whether God will provide it for you. These things dominate the thoughts of most people, but your father already knows your needs. And here comes the punchline, verse 31. He will give you all you need from day to day If you make the kingdom of God your primary concern, end quote. Jesus tells a Thanksgiving story about possessions that ends with a moral about priorities. As the old King James put it, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all the rest of this will be added to you. But I like it in the New Living Translation. Let me read it in verse 31 again. He will give you all you need from day to day if you make the kingdom of God your primary concern. So, I have to ask you, what is your primary concern this Thanksgiving season? Do you share their primary concern? And I'm not talking about the Americans that we've just reported on who are binging and buying post-September 11. I'm thinking about the pre-America Americans that we would do well to be reminded of today. Because there was no question what their primary concern was when our pilgrim fathers and mothers gathered for that first Thanksgiving in the fall of 1621, do the arithmetic, exactly 380 years ago this season. Now, you need to know that 11 months 
that led up to that first Thanksgiving. Those, those 11 months were more devastating proportionally than was our September 11 tragedy. Listen to the numbers. When that 90 foot long splinter of a ship called the Mayflower weighed anchor and set sail back to England the day after Christmas, 1620, it left behind 99 old world pilgrims who suddenly became 99 unprepared new world pioneers. All alone on the roaring ocean's edge, they were exposed, get this, to so devastating a winter that within three months, nearly half of them were gone, dead. During that ravaging winter, seven times as many graves were dug for the dead as there were homes built for the living. Hear the numbers. Thirteen out of twenty-four heads of family perished. Twenty out of twenty-four mothers perished, leaving only four of the fifty-five survivors women. And when spring came, the sea corn that they had brought from Europe failed to sprout. And when a relief ship arrived, that itself turned out to be a disaster, for instead of bringing food and supplies, it posited on their shore thirty-five more mouths to feed. Food was nearly gone. The governor of the community, Governor Bradford, began to ration it. Five kernels of corn per survivor per day. That's all you get. Hezekiah Butterworth chronicled that survival ration in his celebrated poem by the same name, Five Kernels of Corn. "'Twas a year of famine in Plymouth of old. The ice and the snow from the thatched roofs had rolled. The pale pilgrims welcomed with each reddening morn. There were left for rations but five kernels of corn. Five kernels of corn. Five kernels of corn. But to Bradford a feast were five kernels of corn." But then came their hallelujah, Native American friends. And a bountiful summer turned into a life-saving fall harvest in 1621. And then the first Thanksgiving 380 years ago. And from henceforth, when on Thanksgiving the pilgrim families would gather, Mama and Papa and down to the littlest, littlest child, around each plate would be placed five kernels of corn. And beginning with the parents... Through the children, each would pick up a kernel and give one more reason why we give thanks to God this year. What was Jesus' thanksgiving promise? Read it again, Luke 12, 31. He will give you all you need from day to day if you make the kingdom of God your primary concern. So here's the question in closing. Is God... Your primary concern this Thanksgiving? Or is it the carpe diem effect for you too? You know, seize the day, accumulate the toys, abandon the values, live only for the present with the motto, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, the headlines we've just read, how utterly unlike our pilgrim fathers and mothers who found in the simplest essentials of life reason to give thanks for the provisions of a loving God. Five kernels of corn versus eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. That may be how the post-September 11 world chooses to live, but that's just it. It is precisely because tomorrow we will die that today we must live like the pilgrims with God as our primary concern. What does that mean? I leave with you the words of Philip Yancey in his provocative book, Reaching for the Invisible God. He's commenting on the life of Job. Read these words on the screen. 
Whatever you do, Yancey writes, whatever you do, don't ignore God. Invite God into every aspect of life. For some Christians, the times of Job-like crisis, and we have Americans post-September 11 who know that meaning, for times crises like this will represent the greatest danger. For how can they cling to faith in a God who appears unconcerned and even hostile? Others, and I count myself among them, Yancey writes, face a more subtle danger. And I'm thinking of this community right now. An accumulation of distractions, a malfunctioning computer, bills to pay, an upcoming trip, a friend's wedding, the general busyness of life gradually edges God away from the center of my life. Some days I meet people, I eat, I work, I make decisions, all without giving God a single thought. And that void is far more serious than what Job experienced, for not once did Job stop thinking about God. I love those words. I think they're pertinent. Whatever you do, Yancey writes, whatever you do, don't ignore God. And of all, of all thanksgivings not to ignore him, this one after September 11, surely this one to remember. We must not ignore God as a nation. We must not ignore God as a people. Whatever you do, don't ignore God. Jesus didn't. Even on the eve of his horrific death, he gathered his followers around that Thanksgiving table and they sang the Passover Hallel. The words are inscribed on these towering banners above us. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his love endures forever. And when on that next day Christ was hung like a banner against the blood red sky of Calvary, we saw it was true indeed. His love endures forever. We saw the truth. God is truly good. Whatever you do, my friend, don't, please don't, ignore God. Not this Thanksgiving. Tomorrow let us eat and drink and be merry with God. But today, let us give thanks to Him instead. Our words of commitment come from our spiritual founder here at Andrews University. John Nevins Andrews printed in the program. Let's read together. And now, as we set forth, we commit ourselves to the merciful protection of God, and we especially ask the prayers of the people of God that his blessing may attend us in this sacred work. And now, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.